As uh, so we turn in our Bibles this morning, we are beginning a new series in the book of Romans, and we'll be starting this morning with chapter 1. I invite you to turn there, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. As far as its background is concerned, the epistle to the Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, was written somewhere around 58 A.D. And it was while he was in Corinth on one of his missionary journeys. As to how the local church at Rome started, we have no information, we have no idea. But what's interesting is that although Paul did not found this church... He had deep caring interest in the spiritual nurture, in the spiritual well-being of this local assembly. For instance, in verses 8 through 10, we see that not only was he grateful to God for the widespread report concerning their faith in Christ, but that he was always praying, he was always praying for the opportunity to visit with them so as to share with them the things of Christ, that as he puts it, so that together, both he and they might be encouraged in the faith. And this tells us how much Paul not only desired fellowship with God's people, but how much he cared for their spiritual well-being. Paul was a man who desired fellowship with the people of God And he had a great interest in the spiritual well-being of the church of God. Now, the book of Romans has been rightly regarded as the most comprehensive doctrinal letter of the Apostle Paul. And indeed, the book sets forth in the most orderly, systematic, and detailed manner an explanation of the gospel such as we find nowhere else in the New Testament. It outlines, for example, the great truths concerning man's sinful, fallen nature of his justification of his being declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, the German reformer, called it the perfect gospel. The question is, what is the overarching subject of the book of Romans? There are varying opinions. I believe the subject matter is clearly introduced for us in the very first verse. Because right there in verse 1, Paul tells us what he's about. He says there, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, here it comes, for the gospel of God. If you ask what is the subject matter of the book of Romans, it is clear that this, the gospel of God. Some will say it is the righteousness of God, and that would be a strong argument, but 
here's the point. The word righteousness occurs 41 times. The word gospel occurs 13 times. So one would ask the question, why do I opt for the gospel of God over against the righteousness of God? And the reason we do that, I do that, is because right there in the very first verse, Paul sets out what appears to be his overarching concern, namely the gospel of Christ. Certainly we could say the righteousness of God is the major sub-theme of the epistle. So Paul establishes this gospel that he's about. And what I want for us to notice is that there in the very first verse, it is clear that for Paul, the gospel was huge. The gospel was that to which he was deeply devoted. It was that to which he gave his entire life. And you ask, how is this so? Well, first of all, notice that with respect to the gospel, he tells us there in verse 1 that he's a servant of Christ Jesus. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. And that word servant, literally in the Greek, is a slave. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. In Paul's day, to be a slave was to be in a socially demeaning position. And there were basically two kinds of slaves in the Roman Empire. There were wage-earning slaves who were somewhat free from rigorous servitude to their masters. These were wage earners. But then there were what was known as bond slaves. Bond slaves had no personal right to themselves. In a manner of speaking, they were at the beck and call of their masters to do whatever their masters wanted. We could say that they lived for no other purpose than to carry out the will and purpose and desire of their masters. The Greek word doulos, by which Paul identifies himself here in verse 1, was that very word doulos. It was that very word that described the bond slave. And so what Paul is essentially saying then in verse 1 is that with respect to the ministry of the gospel, he is a slave who is bonded to Christ he is sold out to Christ to do whatever his Lord and Master requires of him. In the words of Guy King, this figure of a bond slave implies an all-in energy and an all-out endeavor to the Master. Paul was sold out. Paul sold himself out completely to the Lord Jesus Christ in the ministry of this gospel. Well, the question is, how did Paul come into this attitude? How did Paul come to embrace this attitude of a slave of Christ? You see, Paul was profoundly grateful. He was profoundly grateful to the Lord for the amazingly powerful, transforming grace of this gospel in his heart and life. 
Paul knew very well how wretched a man he was. He knew how wicked he was. He knew how that he lived such a wicked life before the Lord, persecuting God's people, destroying the church of God, as he puts it. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, he tells how that he was a blasphemer and a perjurer and how he wasted the church of God. That was the kind of man Paul was. And this good news of the saving grace of God in Christ, this gospel of God, was what enthralled Paul's heart and mind to the point where he saw himself as having no option, no other choice than that of selling himself out completely to the ministry of the gospel, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. In identifying himself then as a slave... Of Christ, Paul was affirming that he had surrendered the totality of his being, spirit, soul, and body, the totality of his faculties, his mind, his will, his desire to serve the Lord in proclaiming the gospel of God. As such, he regarded his life as of little worth in relation to the task of preaching the gospel. Hear him, for example, in Acts chapter 20, verses 23 and 24, he says to the Ephesian elders, as he is taking his leave of them, he'll see them no more. And he says there in Acts chapter 20, verses 23 to 24, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, here it comes to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul considered this gospel huge. He considered this gospel of such weighty significance. Paul says it's worth it. I've been saved by this gospel. I've been transformed by this gospel. I have no other choice than to sell myself, as it were, as a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, the gospel was for Paul a huge deal. And it was that to which he was deeply devoted. Because notice, secondly, that with regard to the gospel, he called, he was a call, he says there, that he was called to be an apostle. And that he's a called apostle speaks of the weightiness, it speaks of the gravity, the sublimity of this gospel, the good news he proclaims. Because for one to have been an apostle meant that one had to have been authorized, one had to have been empowered, one had to have been personally commissioned by the risen Christ. The apostles were the custodians of the gospel. They were the pioneers as far as the preaching and opening up of the depths of the gospel was concerned. All that they wrote, all that they taught was constituted 
the very word of God. So what Paul is saying here, you want to know how weighty this gospel is? You want to know that this gospel has weight? He says, not only have I sold myself out to be a slave of this gospel, but I am an apostle, a bona fide a representative, a bona fide person who has been authorized, commissioned to bear this word of God, the gospel of God. And in such passages as Romans chapter 1, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 10, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul speaks not only of the special empowering, but of the tremendous honor that was his to proclaim what he describes in 1 Timothy 1, verse 11 as, quote, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel was for Paul a big deal. Third, the gospel was for Paul a huge deal because he also declares in verse 1 of Romans chapter 1 that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was set apart for the gospel by the direct activity of God. In fact, he tells us that he's an apostle not of man nor of men but of God. When he was about persecuting Christians on the Damascus Road, when he was there carrying letters, uh, getting authorization to have these Christians arrested, the Lord Jesus not only stopped him in his tracks, but saved him there on the road to Damascus and set him apart for the gospel. In fact, Luke tells us that in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, because when Ananias was fearful to go to him, a God was sending Ananias to Paul to instruct Paul in the faith, to have him baptized. Ananias was fearful, and here was what God said to Ananias. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He was set apart by God. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul states how that God the Father had set him apart before he was born and how that he had called him by his grace in order that he might reveal him, reveal Christ to the Gentiles. Now, implied by this, statement of Paul that he was set apart for the gospel was that he gave his entire life. He gave his entire life. He gave his time. He gave his energy to the task of preaching the gospel, to the task of making Christ known. By this statement, he declares his full, undivided commitment to the ministry of the gospel. And of course, this doesn't mean that there was absolutely nothing else that Paul did. We know that because suggested by Acts chapter 18 and verses 1 to 3, we know that while he preached the gospel, he was also a tent maker. The Bible says he did that as a trade. In fact, he did this working night and day. Night and day, he tells us, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, 
1 Thessalonians 3 verse 8. And why did he do this? Acts chapter 20 verse 34, to financially support himself. So Paul had other things going on. So the question has to be, what, what exactly did Paul mean then when he says that he is set apart for the gospel? That he is set apart for the preaching of the gospel. What did he mean by that seeing that he was working night and day with his hands? What Paul therefore means by his being set apart for the gospel is this, that all his temporal activities, all his pursuits, all his endeavors in which he was engaged, important and as crucial as they were, he made secondary. He made secondary to the greater and more important task of preaching the gospel. My friends, this should be true of you and me. This should be true of us. Here's the point. The fact is, in all our varied capacities, as husbands, as wives, as students, as teachers, as janitors, as garbage collectors, as accountants, as engineers, as plumbers, as IT specialists, you name it. We should see beyond all these roles the greater role of our being bearers of the gospel of Christ. Think of it. Paul worked night and day with his hands. He worked in the trade of tent making. But if, as you read the book of Acts, what is Paul doing? What, where is Paul putting most of his energies? Hope, you, you find this, that Paul was more passionate about the gospel than he was about his trade. And we need to be reminded, my friends, that when we go out in our world, when we live in our families, when we move in our neighborhoods, at the end of the day, everything that we do, everything that we say, all our pursuits, all our endeavors should be subsumed under this task of the gospel, making Christ known. The challenge to you and me then is, how true is this in our lives? What place does the gospel have in your life? Is the gospel reflected in your life, your speech? Is it evident that for you the gospel means everything? Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ when it comes to the gospel. He says, I'm an apostle. I've been sent forth. I have a special mission. But he says, I am set apart. And even though Paul was busy doing his trade, making his tents, Paul saw himself as doing the greatest of tasks, the greatest of responsibilities that was entrusted to him. And that was proclaiming the gospel. As we said, the gospel, or as we should say, the gospel means good news. But what is this good news? What is this gospel all about? This is a question that's worth asking because, sad to say, there's much confusion in our world today, much confusion in our churches today as to what the gospel is all about. 
Today, the gospel has become synonymous with economic liberation. The gospel, some suggest, is all about human flourishing. It is all about, they say, prosperity as it relates to personal health and wealth. You talk about the health and wealth gospel. Talk about liberation theology. For others, the gospel spells racial reconciliation. In other words, the issue of racial tensions. And by the way, there's really no such thing. <laughs> there's one race. See? Well, we kind of understand what they're talking about. But let me tell you this. The gospel is not essentially about race relations. The gospel is not about meeting our personal felt needs. The gospel is not about addressing social justice or injustice. The gospel, as we're going to come to see, is there is one gospel, and that is the gospel of God. Paul says that in verse 1. Still, for others, the gospel is about enhancing one's sense of self-worth, one's self-esteem, as such, the agenda of the gospel, according to them, concerns how to become a better you. In fact, these statements I'm making are actually caught in titles of books. Becoming a better you. That you go into the average bookstore, how many books you will see about the gospel of God. How to become a better you, how you can maximize your potential. As well, how you can live your best life now. These are the things that pass for the gospel in our time. But my friends, let me say this. As we read and study the epistle to the Romans, we find that none of these things constitute the gospel. Throughout the epistle, we find Paul expounding and opening up for us a vast wealth of truths as to what the gospel is all about. Here in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, he begins to define for us. He defines, he begins to define and to delineate for us this grand subject Scripture speaks of as the gospel of God. Note, first of all, what we see in verse 1 concerning the gospel. We can caption it as, as follows, the designation of the gospel. That's the first thing we notice there concerning the gospel as Paul begins to open it, to open it up. He, he, he speaks of what we could describe as the designation of the gospel. Notice how Paul designates the gospel. Paul describes it as the gospel of God. The gospel of God. He'll again describe it as such in Romans chapter 15 and verse 16. The gospel of God. You know, properly speaking, coming from man, there is no good news. Gospel means good news. Coming from man, there is really no good news. You don't believe me. Just turn on your television. Take up the papers. There is no good news coming from our society. There is no good news coming from man. 
And why is that so? Because fallen and sunken in sin as he is, man outside of Christ is, according to the word of God, according to Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 23, they are in a very bad way. Indeed, no good news can come from sinful, fallen humanity. Because according to Romans chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, their ways are marked by ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. All that man knows, all that man can communicate. Yes, he's brilliant in science, he's brilliant in technological advances, but as far as good news is concerned, he's banned. Why? Because he's in a path of misery outside of Jesus Christ, outside of Jesus Christ. He lacks the peace of God outside of Jesus Christ. He lacks perspective of God. And ignorant of God's way of peace, men and women outside of Christ, what do they do? They concoct all kinds of religion, all kinds of ritual the end product of which is a religion of hell, a religion of eternal damnation. And that, you see, is extremely bad news. That's sad news. And the gospel is aptly designated the gospel of God. Why? Because in this gospel... Not only does God show men and women their lost, sinful, wretched condition, but among other wonderful realities, he shows them the love of God in Christ. Now the question is, what is meant by the gospel of God? It's easy for us to read the first verse and just take it for granted. Well, the gospel of God, well, we need to look at that expression very carefully. What is what, what is meant by the gospel of God? And I've raised this question, and you need to ask this question too. Does it mean the gospel which is authored by God, which derives from God, or does it mean the gospel that is about God? When Paul says he is separated to the gospel of God, is he talking about the gospel that is authored by God, the gospel that derives from God, the gospel that has its source in God, or is he speaking of the gospel that has God as its subject? And I submit that a case can be made for both senses. And regardless of how we interpret the expression, the gospel of God, this much is clear. That the gospel by which we are saved, the gospel by which we come into right relationship with God, right saving relationship with God, is not of human, but is of divine origin. It is the gospel of God. First of all, let's consider how, the, how that God is the author or source of the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of God, first of all, in the sense that the gospel stemmed from the will and purpose of God. Indeed, it was he who devised the plan of redemption. It was he who from all eternity 
from the foundation of the world, devised the plan of redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, all teach that redemption was devised by God from all eternity. The gospel derives from God is seen in the fact that he it was who sent his son into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel derives from God. He is its source because he sent his son when the fullness of time was come. God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Well, let's consider, secondly, how that God is the subject of the gospel. We have established that God is the source of the gospel. God is the author of the gospel. Well, let's now consider how God is the subject of the gospel. According to the Epistle to the Romans, God is the subject of the gospel on account of the following reasons. First of all, the gospel tells of the saving power of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. If we want to know God in the gospel, we learn from the gospel that the gospel is about his saving power. The gospel presents the righteousness of God. That righteousness of God that comes to us apart from the works of the law through faith in Christ, through faith in his redemptive propitiatory work, Romans chapter 3 verse 21 to 22 as well as 25, 26. People today have all kinds of concepts, all kinds of ideas as to how they obtain the righteousness of God. There are some people who believe that one obtains the righteousness of God by attending church, by being religious, by doing good. But let me suggest this, my friend, not all the good deeds that a person does, regardless of how devoted one might be, regardless of how religious one might be, one could be in church 365 days of the year, well, it's really every week, right, for many people, 52 weeks for, for the year. One could be baptized a hundred times. One could take communion uh, thousands of times. And let me say this, that will never bring a person into right saving relationship with God. You want to know how a person is saved? What is the righteousness of God? What is that righteousness that God requires? It is to be found where? In the gospel, Romans chapter 1, verse 7, 4, 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Paul will speak in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, of religious people who ignorant, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They go about establishing their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. That's why a lot of religious people are going to go to hell. God is the subject of the gospel, beloved, in that the gospel tells of the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience. 
The gospel tells of that kindness of his that leads to repentance, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. That the gospel is about God is seen in the fact that it tells of the wrath of God. It tells of his wrath, his wrath which is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, it tells of the righteous judgment of God that all humanity will someday face. Chapter 2 verse 2, Romans chapter 2 verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, verse 11, verse 16. The gospel is not just the fact that God loves us, beloved. The gospel is the fact that man is in a bad way. Man is under the sentence of divine wrath. That unless he is clothed with the righteousness of God, he will be permanently, irrevocably lost. The gospel discusses how peace with God is secured. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel tells of the glory of God, how that not only all have sinned and have fallen short of this glory, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, but that as a result of justification, of one being justified by faith in Christ, one can then rejoice in hope of this glory, Romans chapter 5 and verse 2. That the gospel is about God is seen in the fact that it announces the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. The gospel tells of the love of God in Christ Jesus, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But here's the point, Romans chapter 8 verse 5. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet rebels, he, Christ, died for us. That's the gospel. And we have it here in the book of Romans. That the gospel is about God is seen, my friend, in the fact that the gospel tells of the, his kindness and of his severity. Paul will exclaim in Romans 11 verse 22, Behold the goodness and the severity of God, the kindness of God, the severity of God. There are people today, you go to churches today, where people are preaching a lopsided gospel. Oh, come to Christ. He loves you, full stop. He doesn't want you to repent. He doesn't want you to change. From the gospel, beloved, we learn about the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Romans 11.33 From the gospel, we learn about the nature of God's kingdom because in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, we see that contrary to the way of legalistic religiosity, here's what Paul says about the kingdom of God, about the rule of God. He says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. People today make a big deal about what you eat, what you don't eat, what you wear, what you don't wear, which day you worship. But here's the point. The kingdom of God, the gospel concerns, not with, is not concerned with rituals, with religiosity. The gospel is concerned with God's saving rule in the hearts of those who come to him 
by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the essence of salvation. That's the essence of the gospel. It is the rule of God in one's heart and life. Now, as regards our text, our immediate text, we see here in verse 2 that the gospel is very much about God And it is so for at least two reasons. First of all, and this is the only point we'll cover this morning, the gospel, notice verses 2 through 4, fulfills God's promise. The gospel fulfills God's promise. Here's what Paul says in verse 2. He says concerning the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is the fulfillment of God's promise. And that this gospel was in fact fulfilled is implied in verses 3 and 4 because verses 3 and 4 tell us about the components of the gospel. It tells us how that Christ, it tells of his incarnation, it tells of his death, it tells of his resurrection. So in that regard, that promise was fulfilled. One for us to notice. The fact that God promised beforehand the gospel through his prophets clearly suggests that the gospel is not something new. The gospel is not a recent phenomenon. The gospel is an age-old reality. And here's the point. It bears repeating. The original gospel is only one gospel. That's why today we take exceptions with every new fad, with every new thing that purports to be the gospel. And this gospel, he tells us, God promised beforehand through his prophets, note this, in the Holy Scriptures. That should be underlined because that's important. The gospel He promised the gospel of God, the gospel of which God is the author, the gospel of which God is the subject. He promised beforehand, it's not something new, it's not a new fad, it's not a new phenomenon, it's an age-old reality. And notice, how can we know the true gospel? It is in the scriptures. Do you see that? Yes. Which suggests that if we hear some word purporting to be the gospel, and it does not fit, it does not square with scripture, then it's not legit. And if it's not legit, then we must quit listening to it. Remember what the man said, if it, it, if it doesn't fit, then you must what? Acquit. We can say the same thing with the gospel in relation to the scriptures. If it doesn't fit, if it doesn't square with the gospel, it is not the gospel. So today when we hear talk about how we are to make the gospel relevant, how we are to, we, we have a gospel uh, for the poor, we have a gospel for this race and that race, we have a gospel of justice, social justice. Here's the point. There is but one gospel. It is the gospel of God. It is that gospel which is defined by and delineated by scripture, the word of God. If it's not in the book, it's not legit. 
The age-old gospel, that original gospel, the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through the prophets, is found in Holy Scripture. That's why even the Apostle Paul, great an apostle as he was, Notice even when he's talking about the resurrection of Christ, he did not say, I saw Christ rose. What, did it, what does he say? He says, the gospel I preach to you, how that Christ rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That he was buried, he died, that he was buried, that he rose again according to the scriptures. The scriptures. First Peter chapter 1, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Paul Peter goes on to say, Nevertheless, we have a more sure word of prophecy to which you do well to take heed as unto a light in a dark place. Peter is saying, look, we're not even banking on what we saw. It's what scripture says. To begin with, in Genesis 3.15, God himself first announced the gospel in the Garden of Eden following Adam and Eve's fall into sin. You remember? He came in Genesis 3.15 in what is known as the Protevangelium, the first mention of the gospel. He said, he told how that he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and her offspring, that her offspring would bruise the head of the serpent, that the serpent would bruise his heel. What was he talking about here? He was pointing to Christ. He was pointing to the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, who would die on the cross in payment, paying the penalty for sins. That the gospel was preached beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures is attested by Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, which says this. Here's what Paul is doing once again. Paul says this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Promised through the Gospels, the Gospel was proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 as he spoke of the suffering servant, how that he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him by his stripes, we are healed. The Gospel was promised beforehand, way back in the Old Testament, way back in the Garden of Eden. It's not a new phenomenon, it's an age-old reality. Praise God, in the fullness of time, this Gospel... This promised gospel was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. How we do, do we know that over 2,000 years ago? Galatians 4, verse 4, verses 4 and 5, when God sent forth his son born on, of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Finally, this promised gospel of God was fulfilled when at the right time, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, notice the focus on fulfillment, the focus on God's timing. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This promised gospel was fulfilled, but at the proper time, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, testifying to the fact that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and six. 
And so the gospel, as we close, is distinctively the gospel of God in that it is not only the gospel which has its source in God, its origin in God, but it is the gospel of which God himself is the subject. As we have seen this morning to begin with, that the gospel is about God is evidenced by this fact that the gospel fulfills God's promise. And we can rejoice in that. Over 2,000 years ago, Christ came. He died. And the good news of the gospel this morning is this. If you are not saved, you have never trusted Christ as Savior, you need to look away from your goodness. You need to look away from your religiosity, your churchianity. You need to focus by faith on Christ and what he did on the cross. That is the only way, only way in which one can know true peace with God.